0: Hello, and welcome back to the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. I greatly appreciate you listening. The focus of this podcast is for those that live in the Intermountain West, an area where national gardening companies and even gardening books oftentimes just forget about because of our unique climate, soils, and growing conditions. On this week's episode, we are going to talk about iron chlorosis. If you've had a yard, you've probably had some plants or trees that have had this condition. We'll talk about what it is, why it happens, and how to prevent it. So I modified Utah State University Extension's official definition of iron chlorosis a bit. And it's defined as yellowing of plant leaves caused by the lack of ability of a plant to uptake sufficient iron out of the soil the plant is growing in. Symptoms of iron chlorosis includes the development of yellow leaves with a network of darker green veins. In severe cases, the leaf may turn completely yellow or even white, where the outer edges of the leaves scorch and turn dark brown or black, and as it progresses, this scorching will progress into the leaf itself. Over time, entire branches may die, or even entire portions of a tree And the funny thing is, is that other portions of the tree could be perfectly dark green and happily growing, where other parts are completely dead from the disease. The reason plant leaves turn light yellow is that iron is involved in photosynthesis. Because a plant or a tree can't uptake enough of it, it has a lighter yellow look from a lack of chlorophyll. This reduces the tree's vigor, it reduces its cold hardiness, And especially in fruit trees and things like strawberries and raspberries, it can reduce fruit size and sometimes cause the fruit to taste extremely bitter. Iron chlorosis is very common in the Intermountain West for a few reasons. The first one is our soil. We have alkaline soil, and so if you look at a pH scale, that's anything above 7. At this level, iron becomes less available to a great extent because the majority of the iron in the soil is bound up and is not water soluble. Not being water soluble makes it so that it can't really be absorbed by the plant through the roots. There are other factors that impact how likely plants are to get iron chlorosis. One of them is overwatering. Plants are far more likely to get iron chlorosis in soils that are always waterlogged. It is also more common in clay textured soils and soils that are also compacted. A final factor that causes iron chlorosis includes cool, wet weather. During this time, plants are actively growing, and the cooler weather and the wet soil makes it harder for the plants to get enough iron out of the soil. However, as weather warms up, this usually diminishes and the new growth will come out darker green. Before getting into treatments for iron chlorosis, I want to talk a little bit more about how plant selection is so critical in managing iron chlorosis. Many areas of the Intermountain West have been experiencing phenomenal growth as far as populations, and a lot of the folks that are moving in are just unfamiliar with their climate and they want to grow many of the plants they're familiar with from where they came from. These would include things like red maples and sugar maples, rhododendrons, azaleas, dogwood trees, the list just goes on and on. Another situation includes people have traveled to areas where these plants thrive and want to grow them here. They oftentimes see pictures of them in magazines or on TV. Or even local garden centers carry them, and people will see the plant tags, assuming that because the garden center carries it, it must do well here and then try to plant them also out of a lack of education. Some other plants that we commonly try to grow include aspens, stone fruit, strawberries, raspberries, and silver maple. All of these are very susceptible to iron chlorosis. There are many more. I will include a fact sheet on iron chlorosis put together by Mike Coons, Utah State University's urban forester, that details many more plants that are susceptible to the condition. And so let's get into how to actually treat iron chlorosis. The easiest thing to do is to minimize the number of plants in your yard that are susceptible to it. Instead of growing a red maple or a sugar maple, veer toward maples called Norwegian sunset or Pacific sunset. Instead of growing Janala maple, sometimes referred to as flame maple, maybe try what's called Tatarian maple, that's commonly found in the forms Hot Wings or Rugged Charm. That's just the easiest thing to do because if you have to treat for iron chlorosis, a bottle or a container of iron is minimally going to cost $20, and you'll have to buy a new one or multiples of these every year to treat the plants in your yard. So the first thing I do besides trying to find adapted plants is to manage my water very carefully. Once established, trees usually only need to be deep watered about every 7 to 10 days so that water penetrates into the soil about 18 inches. Shrubs will need to be watered also about every 7 to 10 days and watered to a depth of about 12 to 18 inches. Doing this allows the soil to dry out moderately between irrigations, increasing the amount of oxygen in the soil. Having more available iron makes it easier for the trees to be able to get iron out of the soil into the roots. If I'm planting grapes or strawberries or raspberries, when I prep my beds, one thing I'm always going to do is make sure that the soil is loose and that I incorporate lots of organic matter in the form of compost into that soil. If it's brand new soil, as far as growing these things, I will often incorporate two to three inches of compost mixed into the soil six inches deep. What this will do is create aeration, and again increasing the amount of oxygen in the soil, but it will also loosely hold on to soil micronutrients that the plants can easily absorb, and this increased organic matter actually will make iron slightly more available in the soil. In my experience, the easiest way to treat iron chlorosis in plants that already have it is the application of what's called chelated iron. Now, there are many forms of chelate available, and you need to make sure to use one containing EDDHA iron. I'm not going to try to pronounce what that stands for, but the abbreviation EDDHA or EDDHMA On the label, will tell you that that form of iron has the potential to work very well in our alkaline soils. The reason I'm putting this podcast together now is because it is a great time to actually apply EDDHA iron. It is best applied when the trees are just leafing out or just before, and as they're spurring this new growth, they're taking lots of nutrients, including iron, out of the soil that is then available to go into the new leaves that it is forming. Trying iron applications after we get really hot, commonly up into the 90s, the trees and other plants that you're trying to treat oftentimes really stop growing very quickly. And so iron treatments during this hot time of year oftentimes are less effective at best. This is not an endorsement of these brands, but some common brands of EDDHA chelated iron include iron sequestrine 138, Miller's Farrah Plus, and Grow More chelated iron. There are some others out there, but these three are the ones I find most often in local garden centers and farm stores. There will be mixing instructions on the particular containers according to the tree size or plant size or row feet, depending on what you're actually applying the iron to. Up until a few years ago, it was a common practice under trees and shrubs to poke holes in the soil and then put small amounts of the chelated iron into the holes. This was very time-consuming, but it did work. Lately, though, we found that it's very effective to just go ahead and mix the iron up in 5-gallon buckets, or something similar, and drench the root zone of the tree, shrubs, or plants that you're actually needing to get the iron to. After you're done doing this, it's good to follow up with some additional irrigation for a short period of time to be sure to be able to flush the iron into the soil. It is somewhat photosensitive, and so it does need to be pushed down into the soil. Another option that's detailed more in the fact sheet that I'm including in the show notes includes using elemental sulfur mixed one-to-one by volume with a less expensive iron product that doesn't have chelating agents included. As the elemental sulfur breaks down with water, it forms a weak sulfuric acid. This temporarily drops the pH adjacent to where that sulfur broke down, making the iron water-soluble so that the tree can take it up. Because we have so much calcium carbonate in our soil, which which is basic, When the calcium carbonate comes into contact with the sulfuric acid, it's quickly buffered out, but even this temporary reduction right around the sulfur particles will over time help, but this process can take a while and is not as fast acting as applying an EDDHA iron chelate. As the season progresses, there are many foliar treatments that you can spray on the plants that are infected by iron chlorosis. These are hit and miss but sometimes can be effective and if it's the middle of the summer and the plant looks like it's being severely damaged or might die it may be worth a shot to see if you can get the plants or trees through to the next season so that you're able to treat with an EDDHA iron chelate product for a more effective and more permanent solution. In summary, I encourage everyone to grow adapted plants in their yard so that they can avoid iron chlorosis problems, avoid overwatering, relieve compacted soil, and where possible, improve clay soil with compost. I think that that's going to wrap it up. I really appreciate you listening, and I'll talk to you all next week. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a production of Utah State University Extension. The intro and outro music is composed by Savannah Peterson, a Utah State University horticulture assistant. And so if you're still listening, the show's over. Thank you again.